I am so thankful that y'all are with us this week, and I want to thank you for all of the calls and texts and checking in on us this week. Um, When you have a little one and they go to daycare, they become a disease vector that brings every form of plague back into the house. And we are finally, after about 16 months, learning that if one of us goes down, eventually all three of us will go down. I was telling Susan this morning, COVID has changed so much the way we think about illness. Three, four years ago, I would have been like this, and I would have been miserable, but I would have popped my Benadryl or my Sudafed or whatever it was, and I would have soldiered on, and I would have come into the office. And now we're so much more keenly aware of the way that we can carry disease to other people. And thinking about some of you and thinking about some of the people who work in the office and come into the office on a regular basis who do not need to get RSV made the choice to stay at home. Not something we would have done three or four years ago, right? But I can sit on my computer at home and be miserable while I work just as easily as I can sit on my computer in the office and be miserable while I work. Albeit, Trish is not quite as distracting as Jamie is. At least she doesn't come up and hit me when she wants my attention. But we are thankful for your care and your concern. We are continuing our series, the series that we're in, Retold, in which we look at these... um, Sunday school stories, these stories that, we've, that we know, that we, that we feel like we know really well because we've heard them a lot. We, we got them in Sunday school. We got them in, in vacation Bible school. Um, some of you may even uh, um, remember uh, flannel graphs. Do you remember flannel graphs? With a little, little people sticking. Some of you are nodding and some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy. And the interesting thing is that some of you who are looking at me like I'm crazy should be old enough to remember flannel graphs. But I remember a flannel graph of today's story of the fire and the, and the men and the... Uh, you want to terrify a seven-year-old, show them a flannel graph of people being thrown into a fiery furnace. You know, that's the interesting thing. As we've looked at these stories, that's what we've seen. We've seen a deadly flood sent to destroy the earth. We've seen a parted Red Sea collapse in on and drown an army. We've seen a giant get beheaded, and today we're seeing people thrown into fire. And one of the questions I hear over and over again from non-believers, they, they think it's a gotcha question. They think it's a gotcha statement. You know, they say, oh, well, you don't want your kid reading this, that, or the other thing, but have you ever read the Bible? There's a lot of junk in the Bible, too. And sometimes they point to these stories. Why do you think that these stories are appropriate for kids? And yet we've turned them into Sunday school stories, right? You know, it's, 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 it's a question that we, that we get. Um, the, the, the Sunday school curriculum that our kids are still using and that most of the church used for several years was a, a curriculum called the Gospel Project. And in writing for the Gospel Project, uh, Trevin Wax sort of address the violent nature of so many of these Sunday school stories, but also why we shouldn't shy away from these stories when it comes to teaching our children. Uh, Trevin wrote this, he said, Violence in the Bible shows us how bad our sin is and what our sin leads to. We go from perfect garden 
to brother killing brother. The good news of the Gospel goes brighter when we see the darkness of sin. Our kids encounter violence in this sin-filled, violent world. We can shelter our kids from hearing about school shootings or terrorist attacks for a time, but eventually the reality of our fallen world will confront them. It's important for kids to know that God is not surprised by tragedy or unable to work in the midst of violence. You know, I would say that that could be said not just for kids, but for believers of any age. It's important for us to know and to remember that God is not shocked by violence. And God is at work in our broken and fallen world. We're often shocked at the evil in the world, but God is not. And God perseveres and preserves His people through evil. And that's what we're going to see today in our story from Daniel. We are in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, we're going to be starting with verse 8. Daniel chapter 3, verse 8. I'd encourage you to turn with me. If you don't have a copy of Scripture to call your own, please grab one of those black hardback pew Bibles and take it home with you as our gift to you. I love checking the sanctuary every Sunday to see how many of the Bibles have left with us and refilling them. Daniel chapter 3, starting with verse 8. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews whom you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Then, in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue that I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who? is the God who can rescue you from my power. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was custom. And he commanded the best of his soldiers of his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. 
So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, bound, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we open your word this morning, as we seek to study it, to learn more about you, to learn more about what you have done for us, God, my prayer is is that we would have the faith to help us face the fire, that we would have a fire-facing faith. And God, the way that we build that faith is through the study of your word. So my prayer is that this morning as we open your word, the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. Do you think um, Daniel wanted us to remember the names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You don't really realize it until you're reading it out loud how many times those three names are repeated. The story takes place in Babylon. It takes place where the Jews are living as exiles. In, in Daniel 1, if you were to turn back to Daniel 1, what you would see is that the king requests some of the, the youth of the nobility of Israel, of Judah, to be sent um, to live in the palace in Babylon. And so the characters in this story are part of that group. As we, as we look back to Daniel 1.7, you see that, that the king actually has their names changed from their Hebrew names to Babylonian names. And the interesting thing is Daniel is Daniel's Hebrew name, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are those three men's um, uh, Babylonian name. And it's always interested me, and there isn't a good answer for why in the text, Daniel is known by Daniel, and the others are known by their Babylonian names. But if you turn back to one seven, you see this. The chief eunuch gave them the names. He gave the name Belshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. And so what we have here is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We have um, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These three Jewish young men living in the Babylonian palace, serving the king of Babylon. And what happens at the beginning of chapter 3 is the king, Nebuchadnezzar, decides that he's going to have this golden idol of himself made for everybody to fall and worship whenever the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, or any kind of musical instrument is played. And, and, and he, he states, as part of his original decree, he says, if you do not fall to your knees and worship this statue when those musical instruments are played, you will be immediately, and notice that word, immediately thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, back in chapter 1, the young Jewish men had a choice. 
They were, were faced with a problem. The problem was they were being told to eat food that was not ritually clean. And so they, they told the, the, the eunuchs that were in charge of them, we're not going to eat that food. So they've already been challenged once, living in Babylon, doing something that they know that God doesn't want them to do. Now here is a second challenge. Am I going to fall and worship this idol and, and preserve my life? Or will I not fall and worship and preserve my faith? It puts them in, in this position. Idolatry and living or fidelity to God and dying. And they make their choice. They make their choice to remain faithful to God. And so this confrontation that happens becomes unavoidable. Becomes unavoidable. Verse 8, we see that it's the Chaldeans who who bring this to the attention of Nebuchadnezzar. Now it's important to note that, that I think it's important that, that, that it's noted that it's the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are people who are from an area known as Chaldea. It's in southeastern Mesopotamia, uh, close, honestly, to the, to the Persian Gulf, where the, the, the rivers of Mesopotamia, the Tigris and the Euphrates, enter into the Persian Gulf. That was Chaldea. And at one point, the Chaldeans actually held sway over the entire Babylonian Empire. But at this point, they weren't. And, they, and they were, uh, there was a, it was a place, but they also were an ethnic group. And so now you have one minority ethnic group in the empire pointing to another minority group in the, eth- in the empire who's, who's starting to have some influence at court, pointing to them and saying, look what they're doing. Or more importantly, look what they're not doing. Because when the people gathered and bowed down, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow. They, they, they stayed standing. How many of you, when you were little and you were maybe in Sunday school class, and I'm sure it was none of you who did this, but there was somebody in your Sunday school class who would say, teacher, teacher, little Johnny didn't bow his head when we prayed. Well, here's the question to ask the tattletale. How did you know? Because were you praying? Or were you paying attention to what everyone else was doing? And so that's what's happened here, right? The Chaldeans, like little kids, tattletailing on a brother or a sister or a classmate for not having their eyes closed and their head bowed, runs to Nebuchadnezzar. And what Nebuchadnezzar does not ask them is, why weren't you worshiping the golden statue? Why were you paying attention to other folks? But he doesn't. So they run. And I think they probably saw here that they saw an opportunity to destroy these three folks who had gained some, some prestige and status in the royal court. And they, they saw it as an opportunity to gain themselves. And so they run and they tattle to Nebuchadnezzar. And the text tells us that Nebuchadnezzar flies into a furious rage. I think that's, that's interesting. 
right? That 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 he that he he gets he gets he gets so angry, and he's he's filled, filled to overflowing, with with anger and with rage. Because see, he's not used to being defied. When the king speaks, everybody listens. When the king says jump, you better be three feet in the air before you ask how high. And yet, now he has his report that these, these, three, these three people who are part of his court, part of his entourage, part of his, his administration, and they are defying him? How dare they? But it's interesting here. Because he gives them a chance to answer for this. If you had gone back, if we had read the first part, you would see that the Nebuchadnezzar said, as soon as you don't bow, you will immediately be thrown into the furnace. But he doesn't do that. He calls these three in front of him and he questions them. He gives them a chance to, to throw themselves down and say, Oh, king! I am so sorry. We misunderstood. I didn't know it applied to us. Let us show you how faithful we are by bowing down. It's it's probably an indication of the esteem and the respect that Nebuchadnezzar has for these men. And probably an indication of how important they are to his administration. That he gives them a second chance. And so he gives them a second chance, but it's a second chance for one thing. It's a second chance for complete, total, and utter capitulation. There's no wiggle room here. There's no, okay, now, we know the music's going to play at 9.45, and so at, at 9.43, I want you to step in the other room so nobody can see you not bow, you know, and we're just going to pretend like it doesn't happen, Right? There, there's, no, there's no attempt to compromise here. There's no effort on Nebuchadnezzar's part to meet them halfway. There's, no, there's nothing here. Nebuchadnezzar wants complete and utter capitulation. You are going to do what I say, or I am going to destroy you. That's it. Those are the choices. Those are the options. Here's the thing. Increasingly, that's the world that we're living in. A world that wants total and complete capitulation to idolatry. The world wants us to bow to to false gods and to false idols. And if you don't bow to the false god or the false idol, guess what? You get canceled. Now, I, 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 I think the term cancel culture has probably been overused. I think there are sometimes people get accused of being, people accuse, you know, say, oh, I've been canceled. When No, you're just suffering the consequences for, for bad decisions on your part. Because bad choices have consequences, Right? But increasingly, we are told, if you don't bow to the idols that culture lifts up, you're done. 
Total and complete capitulation. Those, those false idols can look all kinds of different ways. It could be a false idol of a political ideology. You know, the 20th century was, was, was the era of totalitarianism. Communism on the one hand and fascism on the other. And both of those extremes, if you did not totally capitulate to the ideology of the state, you were done. You weren't thrown into a fiery furnace, you were thrown in front of a firing squad. Or into a gas chamber. Or you were sent to die in Siberia in the gulags. Both communism and, and fascism. Now, communism was a little, it was a little clearer, right? I mean, that's in a, a, a stated atheistic ideology. Fascism was, was much more insidious than that. Because fascism put on this veneer of Christianity. But you, but you still had to capitulate. The church had to capitulate to the ideology. There's a, I've got this, and ooh. See, I tell you not to kick it over, and I'm the one who knocks it over. I have this in my office. If you've ever been to my office, you've seen it. It's a printing that was done a couple of years ago um, by a friend of a friend. He did the graphic design on it of the Barman Declaration. The Barman Declaration was written in 1934. It was written by a group of Germans who, after the German church had capitulated to Nazism, says, no, we're not going to capitulate to Nazism. And it's a, it's a confession of faith. It's a statement of faith. It's, it's, it begins, we confess the following evangelical truths. And then it continues through what they believe and what they reject. These were, these were men who chose not to bow to the idol of Nazism. And many of them paid with their lives. One of the authors of the Barman Declaration was Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, who died in a German concentration camp just days before it was liberated by the Allies. They paid the price for refusing to capitulate. So maybe it's an idol of political ideology. We've seen that a lot in the 20th century. Maybe it's the idol of sexuality. If you don't have certain beliefs about sexuality, that it's A-OK to have sex outside of marriage, that it's A-OK for marriage not to be between a man and a woman for life. If you, any, any kind of, of subversion of the cultural narrative on sexuality gets you canceled pretty quick, doesn't it? Maybe it's the idol of racism and racialized politics. Maybe it's the idol of gender ideology. A teacher in Ireland was arrested for refusing to call his male student by a female pronoun because that's what he wanted. Maybe it's the idol of money and wealth. If you're not constantly seeking wealth in our culture, something's wrong with you, isn't it? Whatever the idols that are lifted up by culture, and they change from generation to generation, but whatever those idols are lifted up, culture always demands total and complete capitulation to those idols. 
And if you don't bow, when the, when the flute, when the zither, the harp, the lyre, and every kind of music plays, you're going to be canceled. Now here's the thing. I never thought that I would preach a sermon like this. Because dispensationally, by disposition, I am not a culture warrior kind of guy. I have always thought, my belief, and my belief still is, we want to see the culture change, win people to Christ. We want to see the culture change, show people Christ. Because the culture will change as people come to be more like Jesus, won't it? I've always thought that if we, if we just preached the gospel and, and showed people Jesus and had them follow Him, that the culture stuff would, would work itself out. But we have to acknowledge that these days, increasingly, it feels like that culture is at war with us. And it demands a total and unrestrained allegiance. Look at what Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 15. The end of verse 15. And who is the God who can save you from my power? Is that not the call of contemporary culture? Who is the God who can save you from the power of the Twitter mob? Who is the God who can save you from the power of the news media when they decide that it's time for you to go? Who is the God that can save you from the power of the President of the United States? Whether he's got a D after his name or an R after his name, when he decides that it's time for you to be done. Who are the gods that can stop the power of culture? You know, why don't you just keep your thoughts and your prayers to yourself? And actually do something. You heard that? We heard that in the aftermath of the shooting in Raleigh. People feeling totally disempowered, totally unable and unknowing what to do, hundreds of miles away, saying, man, I'm thinking about it and I'm praying for the people of Raleigh. Why don't you keep your thoughts and prayers? Your God has no power here. It's an utter rebellion against God and the created order. It's because we've made gods of ourselves. Notice what Nebuchadnezzar has done. He's lifted up a golden idol of who? Nebuchadnezzar. He wants you to worship him like a god. And that's what modern culture wants us to do. We, they want us to worship each other like we're gods. We've made ourselves the gods of our own lives. I have the power to choose what's right and wrong. I have the power to determine what's, what's good and what's evil. I've got the power to determine everything about my life, express myself any way I want to. It's me. I'm the God. And what God has power over me? What's the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What does the fire-facing faith look like? These three courageous Jewish men refuse to his face the king and he placed themselves in God's hands. Look at what they answer. They say, look, if the God we serve exists, he can rescue us from you and from your furnace and from anything you can throw at us. But even if in his divine will he chooses not to rescue us, we're going to follow him and not you because we know who he is. 
and because he is sovereign and he is God. And we will not worship you or your statue or any of your idols. We'll fear our God rather than your furnace any day of the week. Because we worship a living God who, if it is his will, will save us. And if it is not his will, is still a living God who will beat your dead idol. Man. Three young men. And it's important to note in this story, these are young men. These guys are like in their late teens or early 20s. They're young men. And they stand in front of the king, in front of, at that time, the most powerful man in the world and said, we would rather die by your hand than deny God what is rightfully his. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? I don't know if any of you have ever thought about what you would do if you were ever in a situation kind of like this. My prayer is I'm not there. Followed by, if I ever am, I hope I have this kind of faith. See, this is one of the things that separates Christianity and Judaism from basically every other religion in the world. Basically, every other religion in the world says, if your life is in danger, it is okay to apostatize. It is okay to deny your faith. Islam Islam has a very clear doctrine. If your life is in danger, it is okay to renounce Allah to save your life. But the sovereign God of the universe says, I'm the sovereign God of the universe. And you owe me your allegiance totally and completely, even when your life is in danger. You know, it's, it's not surprising that the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, unused to being challenged, ties him up and throws him into the furnace. If we had kept reading, what we would have seen, though, is they weren't in the furnace by themselves. What we would have seen is when they get thrown into the furnace, they look into the furnace and suddenly they see not three, but four people walking around in the furnace, not tied up. Verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar exclaims, look, I see four men not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the God. So Nebuchadnezzar has them removed from the furnace and finds that they have survived totally unhurt. That God has delivered them from the fire and delivered them from idolatry. And the king changes his decree after seeing a demonstration of God's power. They're able to face the fiery furnace because they knew that God was with them. They knew that God had not forgotten them. Sometimes we have to be reminded of ourselves that God has not forgotten us. But sometimes we have to remind other people, even really hostile people, that God has not forgotten them. I am convinced that one of the reasons that we see the level of rebellion against God that we see in the world today is because people are convinced that God has forgotten them. You know, there's, there's always those testimonies of others 
that you hear and become pivotal to you? I don't know if you've ever experienced that. You're hearing somebody else's testimony and, 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 and it changes how you see God at work in your own life. Rosaria Butterfield's testimony is one of those testimonies for me. Dr. Butterfield was a, was a literature professor at a secular university. Was in a, a long-term committed lesbian relationship. Hated God. Hated the church. And, and wrote a column for the local paper. And it was just always full of how much she, she hated them. And decided that, that she was going to write a book about how awful churches were. But there was a part of her where, that she knew that if she wanted to be taken seriously as an academic, she, she had to at least give them a, a shot to answer. So she went to a church. Now, I want you to imagine you're this small, Orthodox Presbyterian church, and a woman who describes herself as the devil herself comes walking through the back door. How do you respond? What do you do? Well, what the pastor of that church did was said, we're so happy to see you this morning. We're so glad that you are here. You've got questions? You want to know what we believe? Wonderful. How about you come over this evening and have, daughter, have supper with my, my wife and I? Have dinner with my wife and I? And one Sunday afternoon turned into two, turned into four, turned into eight, turned into 16. Turned into Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield realizing that God had not forgotten her. That God saw her and God knew her and that God loved her and that God was loving her through this pastor and his wife and, and, and she lost her hostility to Christianity and through these meals, she learned that, that she was made in his image and she experienced the love of neighbor and she was show, slowly but surely brought into the fold of Christ. Now she's not a secular literature professor married to a woman. But she's a pastor's wife with several kids. Who, who speaks widely about this and about what the love of God and what hospitality can look like and how we help people remember that God has not forgotten them. On this side of the cross, one key to remembering that we are not forgotten by God is the promise that Christ gives us in Matthew 28.20. We know the Great Commission, Right? Let's not forget how it ends. And remember, I am with you to the end of the age. Brennan Manning talks about a time that G.K. Chesterton was approached by a, a newspaper reporter on, the, on a street corner in London. It's in the early 20th century and the reporter comes to Chesterton, a well-known, at this point, writer and, and author, and, and the reporter asks Chesterton, Sir, I understand you recently became a Christian. May I ask you one question? Certainly, Chesterton replied. 
If the risen Christ suddenly appeared at this very moment and stood behind you, what would you do? And Chesterton, in that very sly, witty way of his, smiled and looked at the reporter squarely in his eyes and said, He is. It's not a figure of speech. It's not wishful thinking. It's not pious rhetoric. This is the truth. It's the most real fact of our whole lives. That the Jesus who walked the roads of Judea and Galilee is the one who stands behind us. Is the one who was in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Is the one who will always be with us even unto the end of the age. We are not alone because the risen Christ has promised to be with us always. And if we are not alone, then we already have the faith to face the fire. In Isaiah 43, Isaiah writes this, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, and your Savior. I have given Egypt as a ransom for you, Kirsch and Seba in your place. That is the God we serve. That is the God that we worship. There may be fires and floods and Twitter mobs and cultural pressure and all sorts of nasty, unpleasant things in front of us. But because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Do you see what we're going to be singing for our hymn of invitation? This is an opportunity. If you wish to unite with this fellowship, make a public profession of faith, or just wish to come forward and have a time of prayer, to pray for a fire-facing faith, this is the opportunity to do that. Our hymn of invitation is because he lives.